0: Hey everyone, welcome to Hub City Church. We are ordinary people following an extraordinary God together. If you want more information about Hub City Church, find us online at thehubcitychurch.com connect and fill out our digital connect card. Now let's dive into this week's message.
1: All right, here we go. So this is from Daniel chapter 1, 3, 2, 3 through 20. Do the math. <laughs> Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and the noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only the strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure that they are well-versed in every branch of learning and gifted with the knowledge of good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language of literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens, and they were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was to be called Beltasar, Hananiah was to be called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach and Azariah was now called Abednego. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now, God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, I'm afraid of the Lord, my king, who has ordered that you eat his food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths of your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetable and water, Daniel said. At the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in the light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. God gave these four young men the unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meaning and visions of dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezra. So they entered the royal service. And whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the other magicians or enchanters of his entire kingdom. This is the word of the Lord.
0: We are kicking off this new series in the book of Daniel and talking about courage. Uh, Daniel is somebody that exemplifies uh, a courageous spirit, and I want to just... For a moment, just ask: What comes to mind when you hear that word "courageous"? This title's in, entitled "Courageous." What, what words would you use as synonyms, or what comes to mind? Brave, Brave. Strength. strength. I what? Brave. Faith. Okay. Bold. What? Opposition. Okay. You got, uh, move. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. A movie about World War II. You might think about military servicemen and women, right? You might think about first responders. You might think about uh, people that have paved a way for others, you know, MLK, you know, civil rights and things like that. They exemplify courage and had a courageous spirit about them, right? They were unflinching and willing to risk. They were fearless. How do we follow Jesus with courage? How do we follow him and hold firm, to stand up, to remain strong in our journey with Jesus and not become jerks for Jesus and arrogant and arguing and picking a fight with people about our faith, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about being rude. That's not courage. That's just rude. But how do we stand firm? As we look at the life of Daniel, we're gonna examine what courageous faith can look like. And Daniel is one of those, whether or not you grew up going to Sunday school, he is like a superhero of the faith, isn't he? You know these stories of the lion's den and all of these moments where he kind of feels larger than life, like he must have been bitten by a radioactive spider because this guy's got it figured out, right? He's unflinching in in this faith that he has. And we kind of forget that this is a guy that had fear and insecurity. This is a guy that had doubts and worries and concerns himself. He was a guy. He was a human, just like all of us. So what gave him the courage? Was it his personality, Myers-Briggs, Enneagram traits? Well, he was a three, or he was an eight, or he was a J-D-P-L, whatever Myers-Briggs initials are. No. It's not just his personality. It's not that he was somehow beamed up with this super boldness from the, you know, superhero Marvel universe. It is that he lived in the most what seemed like inconsequential moments. I believe God formed this boldness and this strength and this courage. It was behind the scenes. It was in the moments where nobody else was looking where I believe that true courage in Daniel was formulated, and that's what we're gonna look at for six weeks. We're gonna spend time looking at the first six chapters of Daniel and seeing these moments that really formed what it means to be a courageous man or woman of faith and have that courage overflow in those tough moments. That it's an outpouring or it's a reaction, it's a byproduct of what happens behind the scenes. And that we would be people who discover and develop our own courage to live in a world that is going to test our faith, to live in a world where we are going to find ourselves in tough conversations, in tough situations, to be people of courage. And so this morning, I wanna just start. Uh, I recently, uh, we're gonna talk about what happened in, in chapter one, but with that, where I want us to land or where I want us to start is just simply, uh, I, I've become a substitute teacher in our school district, and every time I do this, I have an appreciation for our educators. They deserve way more appreciation and, uh, and blessing and financial backing and more than an apple. Why do we give teachers apples, right? Like they need gift cards, right? Because of what they have to do. And I was substitute teaching gym class because I thought I get to wear sweats and I get to bring a whistle and they'll listen to me. I love coaching and so I was substitute teaching gym class and I have a threshold on my substitute application that I do not teach anything below third grade. And there was a reason that I, sub- I checked those boxes. And I got first grade gym class. Because God wanted to test me like Daniel in the lion's den. And I'm in this gym class, and we're, we've got this lesson plan the gym teacher created. And it worked with the sixth graders. It worked with the fifth graders. But by the time I got the first graders, those plans were good as dead, right? And, and we got in there and we're playing these games and trying to go and it was within minutes that I realized first graders are just loud and they are to the definition of chaos. They are just everywhere at once and they are running and everything and we're playing these games and what I noticed as I stood back with my whistle not making any noise and I just observed the chaos of kids running and tripping and falling into each other, and they don't know how to run, apparently, because they're growing into their feet. Dodgeballs are flying, smacking kids in the face, and there's tears, there's screaming, there's other kids telling me, teacher, teacher, he's not running, teacher, teacher, he's doing this. I got policemen out here, apparently, in our classroom. Snitches are getting stitches, you know, they're just, it's exhausting. And I thought for a moment this week as we talk about Daniel in chapter one and I wondered how many of us are trying to live our lives and it's looking like first grade gym class. It's just chaos, it's loud, it's noisy, it's busy. And and what I mean by that is we lack boundaries and structure for things to thrive. Because after the first grade class, I had another first grade class and then another first grade class and by the third one I figured out Boundaries are essential with first graders. Tweet, sit down, tweet, sit down, tweet, touch the wall, tweet, do this, tweet, freeze. Right? Boundaries helped them. They thrived with boundaries. They thrived with structure and some rules. And I wonder how many of us are going through our lives without structure. Without conviction, and that's what we're talking about with Daniel in chapter one, is these courageous convictions that guided his life and allowed his faith to develop for a tense, tough season that he was about to be in, because he's in a difficult setting. When we find Daniel in chapter one, he is in a difficult setting, and he needed some courageous convictions to help be an infrastructure for his faith. I say difficult season because he is an outsider in an insider world. He has been... Uh, thrust into this culture, and he is definitely on the outside looking in, and I wanna just paint this picture that chapter one shows us with looking at a few of the verses that David read uh, to just see how much of an outsider Daniel was in his world. He's an outsider because he's exiled, right? He was taken captive by another uh, kingdom. The Babylonians had invaded Israel and taken them uh, to a land far, far away, and they were now enslaved in this area. In verse 3, we see it says, young men of Judah who had been brought to Babylon as captives. So they're living in a new land with new language, new culture, new values, new systems, new people. The homeland that they had grew up with, they are now exiled from, and they are in a new place. But not only is an outsider because of his geography, he's also being indoctrinated, indoctrinated, meaning he is being educated in the Babylonian ways. We see this in verse 4. It says, make sure that they are well-versed in every branch of learning and gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in, royal, in the royal palace. Train these men in the language and literature of Babylon. This is a, a, an indoctrination that's taking place in these young influential leaders of the Israelite people because think of the power that Babylon is, is exerting in this moment. We're going to take your influencers and we are going to teach them our language and our ways. And we're going to treat them well with all this food and wine and all of this, but we're going to make them knowledgeable of our systems and our culture and the way that we're going to deal with this. It's a, it's a power move because it's going to make rebellion a little less of an option for them because these key influencers are starting to become indoctrinated into the Babylonian ways, right? They're replacing and erasing their old ways with new ways. They're being told... What to think. He's an outsider because he's being told this is what to think. He's an outsider because he's being redefined. Did you notice in verse 7 it says that they were given new names, right? I'll read that, that part and do my best. David, David did a great job reading these names. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names, Daniel, and then Ananiah and Mishael and Azariah. And you can see the names on the screen. You don't need me to butcher them for you. You can butcher them in your minds, right? There they are. They were given new names. Why? Because they're being redefined. They're being told that their Hebrew name is no longer valid here. We're going to give you a pagan Babylonian name. And they're telling you who you are. This is who you are now. He's being redefined. Reidentified. They're replacing their identities with something new. Again, it's a power move, but it makes you feel like an outsider because who you thought you were is no longer valid. He's being reduced. They are thrown into this role of servant to the king. In verse 5, it says they were trained for three years, and and then they would enter the royal service. These men might have been people of influence and leadership back home, but now they are slaves, servants butlers. They are at the beck and call of the king. They are going to his every whim. They are subjected to a subservient role because they themselves as outsiders are now being reduced. They're being told what they're worth. This is what you're worth to us here in Babylon. They're also, lastly, an outsider because they're feeling pressured that their behaviors are being influenced and manipulated and controlled by the king and the king's leadership, the chief of staff, and to a point where they're being controlled and told, this is what you need to eat and drink. I know you wanna eat certain things, but this is what you need to eat. You're a part of the king's service, and this is your diet, right? In verse 10, you see this pressure that is being imposed on them when the king's chief of staff says this. He responds, I'm afraid of my lord, the king who has ordered you to eat this food and drink this wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths of your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Like the chief of staff himself is afraid and he is imposing this pressure. Like if you don't eat these foods, I'm going to die, right? Talk about peer pressure. He is feeling this pressure to do things that they didn't wanna do, to be who they didn't wanna be to live in a place that they didn't want to live. They are outsiders in an insider world. And he's being, and we'll just recap in case anybody dozed off there for a moment, the five areas that we saw really quickly, right? They're outsiders because they're exiled, indoctrinated, redefined, reduced, and pressured. And for a moment, I want you to look at that screen and think for yourself, where do you feel like an outsider? Where do you relate to Daniel? Daniel? Maybe it's not all of them, but maybe it's some of them. You feel exiled because you had to, I mean, think about a kid. When you're a kid and you had to ever move to a new school, you ever feel like an exile, starting in a new school, halfway through the year? Being told what to think. Being told this is who you are. Being told what you're worth. Having to be told this is what you're going to do. There's various ways that we can feel this pressure in our community, in our schools, in our work, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our culture, in our country. And just for a moment, we can stop and we can relate to Daniel and feeling like, yeah, there are moments where I feel like an outsider too. I feel on the outside looking in, I feel marginalized. And similar to Daniel, one of the big factors that can cause us feeling like an outsider is our faith. That we feel that our beliefs and our faith are at odds. Our values are at odds with the culture that we live in, right? You hear this phrase of a culture war. And you, you can feel that tension at times that Daniel would have felt as he's feeling this tension of being told what to do. You need to eat these certain foods. And inside, he's got this inner conviction that says, I, I shouldn't be eating these things. And in verse eight, we see this come to the, to the fruition here when it says, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Why does Daniel care about his diet? Is he a vegan? Is he all organic? Is he shop at Trader Joe's, right? Like what's Daniel's big deal? Why are these foods such an issue? Because I would look at a buffet line like that with all kinds of meats and cheeses and wines and all of these things. I'd be like, giddy up, give me a plate, let's go, right? But Daniel looks at it, he says, no, I can't do this. Why? Well, part of it could be that the, and it doesn't tell us explicitly, but, but some of the scholars looked at this and this is what they break it down to be, is that his upbringing in this Jewish culture would say that the Old Testament laws and regulations that he, he was taught since he was a little child in his Sunday school version, right, back at Temple, would have been that some of those foods are prohibited because they are considered impure or unclean. Those things aren't allowed for you to eat, right? We're not going to touch those things. We're not gonna consume those things. Certain foods, certain things given to idols, their identity as God's people had dietary restrictions back in the day. And so for him, that would have been a line he didn't wanna cross. But another reason it could have been, and I hadn't thought of this till studying this, and some smart person put it up in a book, and I was like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, was that they are in a time of exile, which is about mourning and repentance and sorrow and heaviness, right? You're, you're being captive in a land that's unfamiliar. Do you really wanna be in exile and going over here and all your friends are in suffering and you're over here like partying? You feel that inner tension or that could feel like a defilement? Oh man, I know mom and susie Q over here, they don't get to eat, but we're gonna party, guys. Let's go! Oh, oh, but we're in exile. Isn't it terrible? It's horrible. Yeah, right? And so maybe there's this inner tension, like, no, we're we're here as a punishment from God. We should not be in festival mode. It would be wrong for us to eat these things. But what I admire about Daniel is he's asking for this permission to not indulge and not uh compromise this conviction, but he's not trying to escape the culture that he's been in. He's been put in this culture, he's been put in this position of exile, he's been put in this position as an outsider, and he's not trying to escape it or create a little bubble and say, like, let me out of here. He's just trying to say, can we, can we not allow my, my convictions to be compromised? And it reminds me of a prayer that Jesus had for the disciples. In John 17 at the Last Supper, they're in this final meal mode and Jesus prays for the disciples and he prays a similar prayer to be in the world but not of the world, to not allow these strong convictions that we have to be compromised or corrupted. And look at Jesus' prayer for his disciples in verse 15 of chapter 17. This is Jesus praying for the disciples. He says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world but to keep them safe from the evil one. This should be every parent's prayer as they send their kid onto the school bus, right? I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but keep them safe. I'm sure as David and Jessenia were sending their daughter off to college, even though it's a Christian university, that prayer, God, I pray that you would keep them safe in, from the evil one in this world, but don't take them out of the world. The light is meant to be in the darkness. Jesus understands we are going to stand out because of what we believe in. We are the salt of the earth, we are the light of the earth, we are to shine in these ways, not to blend in, we are to stand out. But in that, that we wouldn't compromise our beliefs, we wouldn't compromise our convictions, right? That we wouldn't give in on these things and that's what Jesus' prayer was for the disciples and I think that that's what Daniel's standing up for. saying, I don't wanna just blend in with everybody else. Because I'm not called to just blend in a part of the crowd. I'm standing up for the faith that I hold true to. As we read this, and as we talk about standing up for these convictions, is anyone thinking about their own personal diet right now and feeling really convicted? Because this conversation, I need to be very clear, this conversation far exceeds food, okay? There's not a condemnation on gluttony, or, well, maybe gluttony, but not on... Uh, eating meat or drinking wine you're not going to hell because you had a steak last night you're not going to burn in eternity because you had a glass of wine with dinner okay this conversation far exceeds food Daniel felt a compromise and a conviction because of his diet but today I believe that our convictions far surpass what we consume Jesus in Mark chapter seven said it is not what goes into your stomach that makes you unholy so he's very clear that the convictions that Daniel holds in this moment are not as applicable and relevant to us today in the same way. The Apostle Peter has the same conversation in Acts chapter 10, and then the Apostle Paul in Romans 14 has the conversation. It's less about food, and it's more about the convictions of what is the the junk food for our souls. Comedian Jim Gaffigan talks about McDonald's and how people kind of have this outward look on McDonald's and and there might be people in this room where you're like, I don't touch a Big Mac. Big Macs are disgusting. McDonald's is terrible, right? And then he's like, but there's some of us and we love McDonald's, right? Anybody in the room love a good McDonald's? Come on, this is a place of honesty. There's only a few of us, okay? Here's the point. Don't judge us because we like McDonald's, right? I know it's junk food for my body, but what Jim Gaffigan makes a point at is You know what? You may not need a Big Mac, but you eat junk food for your soul, too. I got junk food for my body. You got junk food for your heart and your mind, as well. It's all McDonald's, is what Jim Gaffigan says. And I think that's what Jesus would get at. It's all junk food. Reality TV, magazines, websites, gossip, all of these things that we consume on a regular basis, these convictions that we compromise, are us getting into that drive through line and eating the McDonald's of our soul. So it's much more than a conversation about food. It's more about how do we remain committed to our faith and not become tainted by the world that we live in? How do we not become contaminated by the world that we live in? And it's by these courageous convictions that Daniel exhibits. These boundaries, these guardrails, these rules, these deeply embedded um, guides and values and beliefs that will be the thing that provides structure in our lives. This is what I hold to, this is what I believe in, and I am not going to compromise on that. A conviction is like the guardrail on Autopia. You remember Autopia in in Disneyland? If you don't remember, I've got a fun video of my son Maverick driving in Autopia, and it's just gonna play in the background while I talk about Disneyland for a, a moment. And you can see my son driving right, Kid can barely see over the steering wheel, but they allowed him to drive a motor vehicle. Why? Because of the track right down the middle of it. And that track keeps him from steering off and hitting Mickey Mouse, right? Keeps him on the track, keeps him going, keeps him moving. It is the thing that guides him right down the center. The convictions that you and I have for our faith are like that track right down the middle that keep us from swerving off too far to the left and too far to the right too far into the wrong and too far into this and too far into that. It keeps us going. Are we going to be perfect? No, we're going to make mistakes along the way. But our convictions that we're talking about today, right, is what keeps us, as we're following Jesus, keeps us centered. So how do we form these strong convictions? Because I believe we have to formulate these things. They aren't gonna just happen spontaneously. Daniel is not in a moment where he just randomly, like he's given a buffet plate and just standing in line and he's like, oh, what do I think about food? Oh gosh, now that I'm about to eat this food, I think that, I don't know if I should eat this, guys. Do you think we should eat this? He's not in the heat of the moment, holding the plate and an empty goblet thinking, I don't know, what do you think? And some of us wait until the heat of the moment when we're sitting in the lunchroom or we're sitting in the in the break room at work or we're sitting in this compromising situation, and, you know, we're in the car with our significant other, and the windows are steaming up, and we're not married, and we're wondering, like, I don't know, should we be in this situation? Oh, that just got real. And we're wondering where is that boundary, where is that guideline that we should be following? Don't wait until the heat of the moment. But let's take time to formulate these convictions because I believe these courageous convictions are gonna to lead to a courageous living in our own lives as we continue to be obedient. And so how do we formulate it? Okay, there's a lot of different rules you could look at in the Bible and a lot of different spots where you could form these convictions, but very simply, I think we just, we're gonna go back to Jesus' prayer for the disciples when he says, I want them to be in the world but not of the world. Look at the very next sentence he says, And this, to me, is the driving force of of how we formulate these convictions that we're going to live by. Verse 17 and 18, this is Jesus' prayer for the disciples. And I hold that this is a prayer for us as well. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. Jesus is sending us into the world. And what is going to be the defining significant factor that's going to allow us to shine like a bright light? The truth. Jesus wanted the disciples to stand out, just like Daniel's going to stand out in this story. And the thing that's going to make them stand out is the truth. The truth is what makes them holy. The truth of the gospel, right, the truth of who Jesus is, the good news of Jesus, is what makes us shine like stars. It's what makes us pure. It makes... The truth of Jesus is what forgives us of our wrongdoing and our mistakes and our brokenness and our sin. That's what makes us right. It's what sets us apart. It's what restores us into relationship with God the Father. It's what gives us eternity. The truth of Jesus is the thing that is that guide, guardrail or that guide rail, just like on those cars at Disneyland. And so if we're wondering, like, well, what's my stance on blank, or what's my conviction for this topic or that topic? Well, I would say, look at Jesus. What does he teach on it? What does he say about it? The gospel is going to be the truth that is the guardrail or the guideline that leads us to forming those convictions. Look at the characteristics of Jesus. Look at the attributes of the gospel. Is the gospel compassionate? Well then our convictions need to be compassionate. Is the gospel sacrificial? Well then my convictions are going to be sacrificial. Is Is the gospel, you know, patient and kind and forgiving and pure? Yes. Well then my convictions need to fall in alignment with the gospel. What did Jesus say? Pick a topic, any topic, right? It's kind of like pick a card, any card, but pick a topic on any topic, entertainment. You're wondering like, should I watch this movie or not watch this movie, right? What are my convictions about my entertainment life? What are my convictions about social media? What are my convictions about uh, gossip and my words and my diet, my friends, my appearance, my habits, my sexual activity, my conversations with people when they're not in the room? That's a lot of different topics we could pick. But the idea here is that we look at our lives and the different things that we have and there might be components of it where we've just kind of lived with no boundaries. And if God is is pointing something out, I would say, well, begin to formulate those boundaries around those topics. What does Jesus teach about our sexual activity? What does the gospel represent? What does Jesus teach about our words? Maybe that should be the conviction, the guiding line on what, we say and how we say it. And some of us would hear that and we'd say, well, what about things that Jesus doesn't talk about? Jesus never talked about social media, right? It wasn't an issue back then. So he didn't talk about it. So what are my convictions on social media, Sean? And I would say, well then, look below the surface at the heart of the matter on social media. Does Jesus talk about gossip? Yes. Does he talk about conflict? Yes, how many of you know that relates to social media? Does he talk about our words and the power of our words? Does he talk about showboating and pride? How many of you know that relates to social media? Divisive talk, anger. I mean, just, there's so many themes and topics that go to these issues that we would say, well, Jesus never really talks about it, so I don't have to worry about it. And I would say, Take something like that that feels ambiguous and a little gray and look at it through a heart of saying, well, how do I bring the characteristics of the gospel into that theme of my life, this area of my life? And, and it's not that we're creating 101 different rules. It's that we are praying about and considering and formulating these convictions and not waiting till the heat of the moment, not waiting for the last second to figure out how to do this and how to live this out, because I believe that these courageous convictions will guide us towards the fullness of life that Jesus has promised you. These convictions are not just arbitrary. These aren't just rules so that we feel like robots in living this out. This is a conviction that you and I are going to live by so that we can thrive in following Jesus not feel controlled, not feel like carbon copies with each other. Nobody in the room wants to be a carbon copy of me or somebody else in the room. But what do you wanna do? You wanna thrive in the fullness of life that Jesus has promised you. Well, look at the rest of this passage and you see some men that are thriving as they are obedient to the convictions that they follow. In verse 17 through 20, what do we see? We see four guys that thrive. God gave these four men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. God gave Daniel this special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. He found them 10 times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. This is a, a trial period of 10 days, and at the end of that, you see these four men are thriving. God's provision and special abilities and all of this is incredible. Now, a misrepresentation of this text would be, oh, if I just eat vegetables for 10 days, I'm going to ace my math test, okay? So that's, <laughs> let's pause. You're not getting a promotion because of your diet. But what this means is that in our obedience, we experience the fullness of God. In our obedience, we experience wholeness and we thrive as Christ followers. It doesn't mean we're going to be the richest, most good looking, healthiest people on the planet, but what it means is that we are going to be in step with our God. That's what I see. I see four men that are in tune with the presence of God. They are thriving in the presence of God in their lives. And I think if I was to honestly ask each and every one of us, do you want that in your life? When you leave this place, wherever you go, that you would be in lockstep with your God as you're following him on your journey? Absolutely you do. And it's through that obedience that we learn to trust him and follow him and rely on him in these ways. And that obedience comes from convictions. These convictions lead to an infrastructure of our faith in our lives. Another uh, author illustrated these convictions in this way. For some of you, the Disney thing didn't represent anything to you. You're like, I still don't get it, Sean. What, What does your son driving a car have to do with anything? Right, follow me on this. Some of you like gardening and plants. And you have a trellis so that the vines and the plants can grow up on this structure and as they grow along this structure, what do they do? They thrive, they flourish, they're fruitful, they develop. Without that structure, they just pff, grow flat on the ground. right? Raspberries, vines, all of these things that you grow and you have these things, right? tomato plants, you put that metal wire thing in there, why? So that they have structure to grow and grow and grow, and, and, and in that, what's happening? There's fruitfulness, there's health, there's development, there's growth, there's maturation in the plant so that you don't have a bunch of garden plants that are just pff, dead like that, right? And nobody wants to be a Christian that's just pff, like that. We wanna thrive, we wanna grow, we wanna develop, we wanna have our faith grow and develop and be fruitful and it's through the obedience of following these convictions. Those convictions are the trellis that provide the structure for us so that your life is not some garden that's just meh, or some gym class that's just dodgeballs flying everywhere with tears, or some go-kart that's driving off the rails. See how it all connects. The convictions are the thing that provide the infrastructure for our lives. The conviction to forgive myself and others brings an ability for me to thrive from the freedom of shame. I have a conviction to forgive quickly that when I'm in conflict, I'm not going to hold on to that. It's not so I'm robotic. It's so that I can thrive in my relationships. A conviction to avoid gossiping and not talk about people when they're not in the room helps me to avoid bitterness in my relationships and actually allows a wholeness in my friendships and my family. A conviction to not fantasize about other women helps me to thrive in my marriage as I'm united with my wife. A conviction to spend quality time in silence and reflection allows me to experience the wholeness of being in the presence of God without distraction. I have a strong conviction that, Sean, you need to slow down, especially when you are at your busiest. It's not to be robotic. It's so that I can thrive in the presence of God. These convictions are allowing us to grow and to develop. And as that happens, I just want to say this in closing. Our faith, much like Daniel, is going to be tested. It's going to be pushed to a limit. It's going to be questioned and doubted. We will encounter difficult times and awkward times, circumstances where our faith is going to make us feel like outsiders. And we won't or we can't expect to hold on to our faith and be courageous in our faith we don't have convictions below the surface if we don't have convictions in our quiet times and behind the scenes when nobody else is looking we have to take the time to formulate those, to think through those to articulate those with our spouse or our family or our friends and our life group and those important and close to us we need a trellis in our lives for the vines to grow And so I would encourage you this week, pick a topic, any topic. Pick the things that are on your mind right now. Write them down. And let's, on our own, spend some time praying about what does it look like to live the gospel out in that topic. Journal about it. Put it into words. Talk about it with other people. What does it look like to embody the character of Christ in that situation or in that topic or that theme in your life? What does it look like to provide a guardrail going right down the center of it? And allow yourself the time to formulate true, courageous convictions. Let's pray. We hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you want to take your next step in following Jesus, fill out the digital connect card at thehubcitychurch.com/connect. We'd love to celebrate what Jesus is doing in your life.